You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing the Lindbergh baby. Hello, thank you for joining me today. I hope you all had a great weekend and that you did some fun stuff. I know it's not the weekend anymore and it totally sucks, but hey, we all survived Monday, didn't we? Tomorrow's Wednesday and that means that the week's basically almost over and that is certainly something to celebrate, am I right? Over the weekend, my family and I did a few fun things. We also did a couple of stressful things. Uh, the main stressful thing being that we got our annual family photos taken. And if you know, you know that you just want to make sure that the clothes you pick out all coordinate. You're not going to have any wardrobe malfunctions. You want to make sure nobody has food in their teeth and you're just praying with all of your might that you can at least get one decent photo where someone isn't screaming or closing their eyes or picking their nose. And that's really all you need, right? Is just one good photo, please. We have had the same photographer for about three years now, and I seriously don't know how she does it. She's like a child whisperer, but she always manages to get us beautiful images, even when I'm positive that she wasn't able to because my kids were acting like little goblins, but somehow she gets it done like a boss. Photographers, there are some true heroes. We also hung up our Halloween decorations, which... I always think that I have a buttload of decorations, but I always need more. Like I want to go to TJ Maxx's very second and buy more stuff. I think it's also because every year one or both of my kids, or let's be real, my husband break something. So I buy some and I lose some every single year. So then I just like maintain this homeostasis of Halloween decor. Um, for instance, yesterday we were watching Frankenweenie, which I had never seen it before. If you guys haven't watched it with your kids, it's a good one. Um, and during the middle of the movie, out of the corner of my eye, it happened so fast. So I like didn't even have time to react. I see my son. Um, he just turned two like a couple weeks ago. He picked up a little decoration that I had on our console table. And it was this decoration that's like a porcelain set of spell books and it lights up and it's really fun. And he just like randomly picked it up, looked at it, put it over his head and like dropped it, like threw it on the ground with all of his little might. So needless to say, rest in peace, little decoration. <laughs> at least you were up for less than 24 hours before you were destroyed by Vance's wrath. And it's completely unprecedented wrath. Um, and make sure you guys make sure wherever you are, you need to go for a drive and admire all of the beautiful leaves changing. Seriously, they are so gorgeous this year. And you know what? COVID-19 can take a lot of things, but it can't take away this fall foliage in October. I'll be damned if COVID even tries to take away my October. Oh, I'd like to see him try a little jerk. Do you like how I made COVID-19 a man? <laughs> I'd like to see him try. <laughs> Um, there are currently no updates on any of our previous cases that we've discussed this far, but y'all know I'll keep searching for updates every week. And if there is ever something super huge, like a case gets solved or someone gets arrested, 
you know I'm going to put that up on the Instagram page. So if you're not already following me there at Mystery Still Unsolved, what on earth are you waiting for? A personal invitation? Okay, here goes nothing. Dear you, the person, yes, you, listening right now, I hereby invite you on Tuesday, September 29th, year 2020, the worst freaking year on this planet, to join me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. I'd like you to follow us and participate in our discussions and engage or, you know, just watch it all unfold if you're feeling a bit shy. Sincerely, me, Rochelle from Mystery Still Unsolved, RSVP, ASAP. So there you go. Um, In case you missed the intro, we will be discussing one of the most haunting crimes in American history, the daring kidnapping and tragic death of little Hugh, baby boy Charles Lindbergh Jr., the son of one of America's greatest national heroes of the time. If you've been with me since the beginning, then you know that this is going to be my first child uh, first child case covered on this podcast. And I have purposefully not done a child for my own sake because these cases are incredibly hard for me. So we will seldom, if ever, do cases involving children because seriously, my mama heart really cannot take it. I think because this case is an old one that I can handle it a little bit better, but even still, I have my computer pulled up to an article right now and his sweet little face is on my screen and I can't, I can't help but get teary eyed and just wince whenever reading or hearing about the details involving little baby Charles. This was a tough one for me to research. It was a tough one for me to put together and write. I honestly don't even know why I chose to torture myself this week. So I know it's going to be a tough one for me to record today. So bear with me and we will get through this together. All right, let's begin, shall we? At the estate of Charles Lindbergh Sr., and Anne Morrow Lindbergh in Hopewell, New Jersey, 88 years ago, this tragic event took place. But before we get to that fateful night, I want to give you some background information that you may not be aware of, even if you are familiar with this particular case. After 1927, Charles Lindbergh Sr. was considered an American hero. His claim to fame was that he was the first man to successfully fly over the Atlantic Ocean. Many, many people had tried, but had unfortunately failed by succumbing to their deaths. And so this was a huge deal, not only for Americans, but for the entire world at large. Charles had completed this 3,600 mile journey in 33 and a half hours, a nonstop flight. And I know that this may show off my immaturity a bit. And I know that this is super shocking to you that I'm being immature because I know that you almost assume that I am just a beacon of nonstop poison class. (laughs) But after learning about his 33 and a half hour nonstop flight across the Atlantic, I only had one question. Upon the completion of his flight, Did he change out of his diaper? (laughs) Totally kidding. No. Upon the completion of his flight, he received the Orteg Prize, which was worth $25,000 adjusted for inflation would make it about $360,000 today. So, nothing to sneeze at. 
The Orteg Prize was named after its creator and founder, Raymond Orteg, a well-to-do hotel owner who had offered this prize money as a way to increase interest in aviation. And apparently it worked because a lot of people got into aviation and a lot of people attempted to make this flight. Um, Like I said earlier, this made Lindbergh not only an American hero, but a hero on a global scale. Everyone all over the world was talking about this new celebrity and everybody wanted to meet him. It didn't hurt that he was pretty easy on the eyes, if we're being frank, if I do say so myself. He was also a really humble guy and even a bit shy, so a heartthrob to all the ladies in the late 1920s. Um, It was because of this combination of talent, skill, and good looks that he embarked on a world tour. During this world tour to gain interest in aviation and give people a chance to meet him, he met Eris and Maro in Mexico. And although Lindbergh was a celebrity and a hunk, it took him 10 whole months to bolster up the courage to ask Anne on a date. But after they started dating, his confidence must have skyrocketed because during their third date, he proposed. Anne accepted and the two were married on May 27th, 1929 in New Jersey, where Anne's family had some properties. A little over a year later, on June 22nd, 1930, they welcomed a baby boy. A baby boy they named Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Charles Sr. hated the media attention that he was getting. Some considered Charles and Anne the Kardashians of their time and that they were world-renowned. Charles hated all the attention, though, and they decided that it would be best to sequester themselves to a private estate to escape from all of the drama. On March 1st, 1932, a cold and rainy night, when baby Charles was only 20 months old, tragedy struck. Little Charlie, how he was called by his family, went was stolen from his crib when all of the other adults in the house were completely wide awake. This brought terror to the hearts of parents everywhere. People thought if this can happen to Lucky, Lindy, and Anne, the most famous family in the world, it could certainly happen to anyone. There were few clues other than a broken homemade ladder left by the kidnappers. The police had an extremely difficult time putting together a timeline of events of the crime, What ended up emerging and being considered facts is the following. Sometime between 8 and 10 p.m., one or more people came to the house with a homemade folding ladder, and it was set up right beneath the baby's window. The kidnapper got into the baby's bedroom through the unlocked window. Once inside, they snatched the sleeping baby. Some think that he was silenced or was even rendered unconscious because no one in the house heard the poor baby cry and the baby was whisked down the ladder and taken. But being a mother myself, I know that if a baby is sleeping for quite some time and they're in like a true deep sleep, especially around that age of almost two, they're actually pretty docile and they don't even realize what's going on if you like try to wake them up at that point. Like for instance, if Vance is sleeping for an hour or two, I can get in there, take him out, change his diaper, and put him back in his crib with little to no fuss. So maybe this is just my mama's heart attempting to be hopeful, but I do hope that this was the case and that they did not hurt him or scare him. There is evidence that there were tire skids not far from the Lindbergh estate and that it is believed to be the getaway car that left using a service road that led away from the Lindbergh property. 
left behind on the windowsill was a ransom note. The note reads as follows. Dear Sir, exclamation point, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police. The child is in good care. And just in case you were wondering, $25,000 adjusted for inflation would be about the same amount of money that Lindy got when he completed his um, journey across the Atlantic. So it was about $330,000. The Lindberghs did end up calling the police anyway. And as we know, they didn't find much of anything other than that foldable ladder a chisel and some footprints leading to the scene, um, leading from the scene where the baby was taken to the getaway car. So that's kind of all that was there. The criminals didn't leave behind any fibers, any fingerprints, hair, blood, no DNA that could be tested today. But notice that they did leave footprints. Um, hello, can we not have casted those? They could have. But they didn't, which is so frustrating. Um, and it's seriously so unfortunate that they didn't cast it when they could have, because by the next morning, the news had been broadcast worldwide, and the Lindbergh estate was literally swarmed with all sorts of media and like crazy people. Any evidence that was not found that night by the police was it was utterly lost due to the stampede of people that arrived that next morning. People in the 1930s were absolutely mental when it came to these sorts of things. Like, they didn't have TV, so, like, this was their entertainment. They would, like, come from all over, and they would, like, take souvenirs. Like, one time I read about this case where this couple was murdered underneath, like, an olive tree, and a bunch of crazy people came and, like, dug up the tree and, like, chopped it up into little pieces and, like, sold those pieces as souvenirs to people at the trial it's like super weird um they would sometimes even break into um the Lindbergh home to take clothes that belonged to baby charlie seriously no respect for forensics at all and they did not know or maybe they just didn't care about the importance of preserving a crime scene Charles and Anne wanted to be able to negotiate with the kidnappers without any interference from the police. And we're going to get back to how he did this because it was a little bit extreme in a way. Um, so let's put a pin in that. But for now, all you need to know is that he, um, Lindy, wanted no arrests to be made until after their baby was returned to them because he didn't want the kidnappers getting spooked and harming their child. The Lindberghs put out a broadcast to the world stating, we assure you, the kidnappers, that you are negotiating only with us. All we want is our baby back home with us. Okay, so we've established that the Lindberghs are huge right now. Kidnapping news is always huge. So when the two collided, everyone wanted to get involved. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Al Capone. The infamous mob boss himself called the kidnapping the most outrageous thing he had ever heard. 
And that's a lot coming from a man who murdered or had like a buttload of people murdered in some truly disturbing and gruesome ways. I mean, if Al Capone thinks that what you did was outrageous, then I think maybe you should reevaluate some of your life choices. Al Capone went even as far as to offer $10,000 to anyone with any information that would lead to the capture of the kidnappers and the return of little baby Charlie. And then there was John Condon. And he's not as famous as Al Capone, and you've probably never heard of him. I know that I hadn't heard of him. Um, He was actually a retired principal who was well-known in the Bronx area of New York at the time, and he had put an ad in the paper in order to get in touch with the Lindberghs. In his ad, Condon offers to be sort of a go-between for the kidnappers and the Lindberghs. He even offered $1,000 in good faith, and wouldn't you know, I mean, this is a different time, guys, wouldn't you know, the Lindberghs saw the ad, and they were actually in the market for a go-between due to their celebrity status. I mean, they couldn't just be wandering around back alleys and cemeteries in the dark searching for kidnappers, and believe it or not, with the approval of a returned ad from the kidnappers the Lindberghs decided to hire Condon, which literally just blows my mind right now. Oh, that would be like the equivalent like the equivalent of like a stranger like reaching out to you on Facebook after your kid has been kidnapped and is like, hey, I'll be your go-between. That just seems so weird to me. About 10 to 15 notes were communicated between Condon and the kidnappers. Sometimes the notes were made in the ad section of the paper. Other times they would be delivered to Condon's house when he wasn't home and he'd find them later. Other times they'd be found somewhere on the Lindbergh property. After about five notes, the kidnapper and Condon set up a meeting, like a meetup at a graveyard. The kidnapper identified himself as John, real original, John had wrapped fabric around his head to attempt to conceal his identity, um, but you could still see parts of his face, and he also spoke in a thick German accent. Real or not, we have no clue at this point. Uh, John asked Condon, do you have the ransom money? And Condon says, no, you won't be getting any ransom money until we see the baby and know that little Charlie is okay. Now John starts to get really nervous and Condon can sense that John is becoming tense and he doesn't want to risk messing up this encounter. So he attempts to reassure John, hey, hey, nobody wants to hurt you. No one is upset. John, the parents and the world, they just, they just want the little boy back. Once you give him back and you get the money, this will all go away and all will be forgotten. But kidnapper John is still nervous and he says I'm afraid I'll burn and Condon's like no what why would you think that John asks okay but what if the baby is dead like what happens then will I burn if the baby is dead and Condon starts to freak out obviously and is like what? What do you mean if the baby is dead? Are you telling me that little Charlie is dead right now? And John quickly attempts to recover what he just said. And he's like, well, I, I mean, no, obviously, I mean, obviously the baby is alive. He is alive. He's safe. He's, he's in a boat being taken care of by two lovely ladies that I've hired. Condon's 
although somewhat relieved by what John is saying, um, he's still not really buying it. And he tells John, you know what would make people feel better? Some proof. We need some sort of proof that little Charlie is okay. Something in good faith that I can take back to the Lindberghs that assures us that you really do have the baby, like that you're not pretending to be the kidnapper and that you really have the baby and that baby Charlie is okay. A day or two later, Condon receives a package with a wool pajama sleeper. Condon brings the package straight away to Anne and he asks, does this sleeper mean anything to you? Anne and the nanny are both able to confirm that this sleeper was the same sleeper that Charlie was wearing the night that he went missing. But by now, it's been like a whole month since Charlie has gone missing, and Charles is growing impatient, and he's concerned that if they don't get this money together and over to the kidnappers, that they, the kidnappers could get tired of waiting and, and possibly hurt their baby. So he calls the IRS, and he gets them to get the money together. Now, the IRS obviously want to get baby Charlie back, but they also want to be able to find out who did it. So the Lindberghs and the IRS come up with a plan. Gold notes, which basically look exactly like the money that we have today, except for instead of the gold, the green seal that we have now, there was a gold uh, one. They are slowly being taken out of circulation, but at that time you could still use them. They decide to give Charles the 20s, 10s, and 5s in gold notes, hoping that that will make them a little bit easier to track. On Saturday, April 4th, the Lindberghs uh, give the money to Condon. Condon meets with John to give him the money, and during the exchange, John gives Condon a letter with the exact coordinates of the boat that is currently housing baby Charlie. The coordinates state that Charlie is being held off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. A few hours later, um, Lindy is flying over the coast in his private plane, desperately searching for the boat with his son inside. But his mission and his search would be in vain because there was no such boat. Charlie was not found that day. So now the Lindberghs feel absolutely defeated. They've given this kidnapper the $330,000 today, which is actually $25,000 back then, and the, which is the only incentive that they had to get the kidnappers to speak with them. And they've already given it to them, and they still don't have Charlie. On May 12, 1932, little Charlie's body was found partially buried only five miles from the Lindbergh estate. The baby was found accidentally by a man named William Allen, a truck driver who had stumbled across the tiny body when he had stopped near the woods to relieve himself. He immediately knew, based on where he was located, that it could be baby Charlie, so he called the police immediately. Little Lindy's body was badly decomposed as it had been out there amongst the elements for two months. An autopsy revealed that Charlie had died from a blow to the head. The ME did say that the blow did not appear intentional in nature. He said it was most likely an accident that occurred when the kidnapper was descending the ladder from the baby's room and the ladder snapped and the kidnapper had possibly dropped the baby when that occurred. The ME believes it was something that had happened right away. He didn't believe that the baby had ever been taken to a second location. 
investigators came to believe that this was most likely an inside job. For starters, the Lindbergh estate was being renovated. Because of this, the family usually only stayed at their home on the weekends. Um, They stayed with Anne Morrow's family Monday through Friday. But the night Charlie was kidnapped was a Tuesday. And the family had unexpectedly and pretty much without any notice decided to stay at the property because Charlie had developed a cold over the weekend and Anne didn't want Charlie to be traveling. So, like I said, normally they stayed with Anne's family in Englewood, New Jersey, Monday through Fridays while the renovations were being done. So how did the kidnappers know that they were going to be there that night? John Douglas is a criminal profiler who is basically one of the founding fathers of behavioral science and criminal profiling. He says that in order to figure out who did this, we need to figure out what the intention of kidnapping Charlie was all along. He uh, reminds us that there is a lot of planning and resources that go into caring for a toddler, and I'm, I'm a mom of a toddler, so I know that this is true. And he says, unfortunately, it's much easier to kidnap a toddler uh, kill a child and pretend that the child's alive in order to get the ransom than it would be to actually care for the child until you get the ransom. And when dealing with these types of people who think kidnapping is a good idea, these types of people can't be bothered to care for a child. They're not going to like have the, the nurturing heart required for such a, such a task. While the Emmy thought that the baby was killed accidentally, perhaps when the kidnapper was startled after his ladder snapped, John Douglas has another idea. He had the original Emmy's report reviewed by a modern-day Emmy who specializes in children's suspicious deaths. And oh my gosh, can we just acknowledge for a moment how terrible his job must be? Oh my gosh, I cannot even begin to fathom the dark world that he has to live in every day. It's just so unfortunate that we even need somebody who specializes in children's suspicious deaths. Like, it makes me feel sick. Moving on, because I seriously can't take this. The new modern-day Emmy says that while an accidental fall could account for some of Charlie's injuries, it can't account for all of them, which immediately starts to make my blood boil Because if it was an accident, that's one thing. But if this baby was intentionally hurt, it makes me so mad. Uh, The Emmy says, and obviously trigger warning. I need a trigger warning for myself. Seriously, guys, this, this might be my last child case that I do on this podcast. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is seriously just so hard for me. I'm going to go through this information quickly, and hopefully I don't come off as callous by doing so, but I really just need to power through. I don't even know if that's appropriate to say. Um, I'm going to, like, almost in a robotic way, I need to, like, get through this so that I don't even have time to really focus on what I'm talking about, or else I'm not going to be able to get through it. So, all right, let's do this. Okay, so the Emmy says that there is an injury on the left side of the child's head, right above the baby's left ear, that is, that could be indicative of an accidental fall. 
but he says that on the right side of the head, there is a small, almost perfect circular hole above the right ear, and this is the one that the modern-day ME says cannot be explained by just a fall. So, what causes injury, and how did the baby sustain injuries to both sides of his head? The ME has a possible explanation for this phenomenon, and it's anything but accidental. It's, it's murder. Ugh, guys, this is the part of the ME report that I don't even want to talk about it. Ugh. I know that I like true crime, but I'm human. I'm not heartless. I cry pretty much every time I research any and all of these cases. I also want all those who hurt and kill people to get a swift kick to the throat. But the ME says, the ME says that a more likely theory to how these injuries were sustained was that the baby, my gosh, I can't do this. The baby was placed with his head to the side and was struck above the right ear by some sort of a tool like a hammer or a chisel. Uh, the force on the right side would compress the left side of the skull, and that is how those injuries would be obtained. So this would mean that the kidnapper's kidnapper killed Charlie intentionally. Ugh. This totally sucks. But, I mean, we have to talk about it because it's a piece of the puzzle and we can't avoid it or ignore it. Criminal profiler John Douglas says that the brazenness and the callousness of this crime speaks to him that this wasn't some amateur guy trying to make a quick buck, like this wasn't somebody's first time. These were professionals, as in they had done not exactly this thing before, but something like this before. Not only were they bold enough to kidnap a baby from his home when it was obvious from all the lights on in the home at the time that people were awake, but they were brazen enough to kidnap the Lindbergh baby, the most famous baby in the world at this time. They were incredibly ballsy, callous, and ruthless people. These were hardcore criminals. But who? Who could have done this? Well, in the 1930s investigation, unlike John Douglas, uh, the investigators in 1930 were convinced that it was an inside job, and they quickly zeroed in on a maid working for the Lindberghs. Her name was Violet Sharp. Um, during their investigation, they had interviewed all of the Lindbergh employees, and apparently they had interviewed Violet three times, and all three times she appeared incredibly nervous and made what they deemed contradictory statements. On June 10th, when Violet was going to be questioned for a fourth time, Violet took her own life by ingesting silver polish and cyanide. Some people assumed that this was an indication of Violet Sharp's guilt. However, investigators were later able to confirm her alibi and discovered that contrary to what they had previously believed, um, their, like, conflicting, uh, their conflicting uh, facts had actually checked out. So this is the conflicting facts that the police were worried about. So apparently Violet had told police that on the night in question, she was on a date, but the man she had gone on a date with had two last names. 
but she had only known one. So I don't really know the name of the guy. So let's just pretend that his name was John Edward Stanton, like with a hyphen. And he had told Violet that his name was John Stanton. So when police asked her, okay, you're on a date. Who are you on a date with? And she said, John Stanton. He's from this, this place. Police had looked up that name, John Stanton, and nothing had shown up. Then after her death, they were informed about the error and looked up John Edwards Stanton. And sure enough, he existed. And sure enough, when they contacted him, he was able to corroborate with Violet's story that she had been on a date with him that night. Poor Violet had killed herself over the fear of losing her job, genuine sadness over the loss of baby Charlie because, I mean, she was a maid, so she interacted with him a lot, and the pressures of being questioned and thought to have been involved in the kidnapping and the murder of the baby that she loved so much subsequently led to her suicide. She was 100% innocent. John Condon was also looked into as well. Apparently, John Condon thought of himself as a hero for being able to be the go-between for Lucky Lindy. Most people thought he was sort of a weirdo and thought that he had inserted himself into the investigation because he may have been involved in the kidnapping and murder of baby Charlie. People also considered him to be kind of a blowhard. (laughs) He loved to tell stories, and every time he told a story, the story would get a little bit better with more and more embellishments. Kind of reminds me of my mother. (laughs) Oh, love you, mom, but for real. Uh, Many people think that this is why the case still hangs in the balance today because it's really hard to sort through which details Condon reports are true and which are just smoke and mirrors concocted by Condon to come off as like this cool guy. But you might want to know that cops did look into Condon and his alibis always checked out. So he was weird, but his alibis checked out. In 1934, a bank teller uh, checking in gold notes found a match from a list that the IRS had sent out with all the information on the gold notes that had been given to the kidnapper for the ransom money. The money was tracked to a proprietor, a proprietor, <laughs> a proprietor, a proprietor of a gas station. The man said that he had received the gold note from a suspicious character with a German accent that had visited his establishment one day. The man had purchased 98 cents worth of gas and had paid with it with a $10 gold note. The gas station owner worried that since gold notes had kind of been out of circulation for about a year at that point, the bank might not accept it. So just in case, as the car was leaving, he wrote down the license plate number. But the bank did end up accepting the note and the man kind of forgot about it until the teller noticed the numbers that matched the IRS list. The license plate number led to a 35-year-old carpenter, Richard Hauptman. When he is found, he has on his person another $20 gold note that matches the IRS list. A search of his home finds um, $1,830 hidden behind a board in his garage and another $11,930 hidden in a shellac can also inside of his garage. But Houtman has an explanation for the money. 
He claims his German friend named Isdor Fish had put some items in his garage to store while he went home for a trip to Germany. Then, while on this trip, Isdor had died. And when Hauptmann found out, he went out to the garage to clean out the items that Isdor had stored in there. It was then that he came upon the money, and Hauptmann thought to himself, well, Isdor is dead, and he no longer is in need of this money. And Hauptmann took it upon, took it upon himself to start using it. He didn't know that it, where the money had come from. You know, he's just an innocent man that was just like, my friend died, and he left all this money, and I'm going to use it. Hauptmann claims that he hadn't even told his wife and son about the money that he had found in his garage. Police were obviously, just like we all are, suspicious about his explanation. And this suspicion only increased when police searched the inside of Hauptmann's home and written on the trim of a closet door was a smudged telephone number. A phone number belonging to none other than John Condon. Did you guess that? Because that blew my mind. I was like, when I was learning about it, I was like, whose phone number is it? Whose phone number is it? Um, Then even more damning evidence. In the attic, uh, police found a sawed-off board that appeared to be the same board used in the construction of the broken foldable ladder found at the Lindbergh property propped up by the baby's window. Oh, yeah. And did you catch that part when I said Hauptmann was a carpenter? Hauptmann was charged for extorting $50,000, and the next week, an additional charge was given for the murder of baby Charlie. The trial of the century was held in New Jersey. Some newspapers reported that it was the biggest story since the resurrection. (laughs) Gotta love 1930s reporting. So dramatic. (laughs) And like I said earlier, the media and people in general were going bananas over every detail of the story. Outside of the courthouse, there were vendors selling souvenirs like mini replicas of the infamous broken ladder, complete with a crack in them, which is just super morose and effed up to me. Um, They also sold fake locks of baby Charlie's hair and signed in quotes photographs of Charles Lindbergh Sr. Haltman is represented by attorney Riley and the case is prosecuted by attorney Willens. Willens seeks the death penalty. Willens outlines the way he believes the baby was kidnapped. The jury hung on to every word with women crying hysterically in the audience and Anne Morrow gets up, she takes a stand, and she describes the events from her, uh, from her perspective. She identifies the wolf sleeper for the jury. The defense does not cross-examine Anne, stating that grief should not be cross-examined. Charles Lindbergh Sr. also takes the stand. He says that around 9.30 p.m., he was in his study and he thought he heard the sound of a milk crate snapping in the kitchen. But he had not checked it out because it was a familiar sound during those days. He now knows that the sound he heard was most likely the sound of the ladder breaking, and possibly the sound that preceded the death of his son, if we continue with the belief that the death was accidental, which I'm still not sure about. I'm going to let it marinate a little bit. You guys can let me know what you think in the comments on the picture that I posted today on Instagram. 
The defense suggests during cross-examination that perhaps Lindbergh should have looked into the references of his employees more thoroughly as they attempt to suggest that it was an inside job. They make a good point that at no time during the night of the kidnapping did the Lindbergh's dogs bark. And apparently it's confirmed by neighbors that the dogs barked anytime someone unknown or unexpected approached the house. So while I can kind of like get on board with their like dog thing, I still think that they're gaslighting and kind of like, and not kind of, but they are like victim blaming, blaming Charles Lindbergh and being like, well, if only you hadn't, you had more thoroughly checked your references, maybe your child would still be alive, which I think is BS. They need to stop that crap. Um, defense suggests that it could, that it could have been a neighbor or a former employee who was disgruntled. They also suggest that it could have been, um, Condon. Um, which we've talked about earlier. The nanny takes a stand as she is apparently the one who identified Charlie's body. Um, she said that she knew that the remains were that were those of baby Charlie because she had actually handmade, like hand-stitched, his little undershirts that went under his sleepers, and he was wearing one at the time of his death. Also, um, apparently Charlie had two toes on one foot that were a bit unusual and that they were kind of like fused together, like slightly. Um, so that's how she was able to identify that the remains found in the woods were those of, uh, baby Charlie. Another witness, an 87 year old man was called to the stand. He claims to have seen a man in a green car with a ladder that night go towards the Lindbergh home. The man had apparently glared at the 87-year-old as he walked by. Willens, the prosecutor, asked if the man he saw that night was was Houtman, and the man said yes. And just as the man said this, the lights in the courtroom went out, which made the room pitch black. People were panicking. Women were fainting. At some point, defense attorney Riley jumped up and yelled, You see, it's the Lord's wrath upset over this lying witness. Oh my gosh. Somehow the judge is able to calm everyone down once the lights return. Uh, John Condon is later called to the stand where they ask him if he thinks Houtman is the man he delivered the ransom money to. John says yes, but he wasn't able to identify Houtman in a lineup. And also, the night the ransom was exchanged, Condon had made a mental note that the kidnapper had a weird thumb, like a fleshy lump on his thumb. But the lump was not present on Houtman or any of the men in the lineup. A wood expert was called to the stand, and he claims that the board found in the attic was a perfect match to the wood used to build the ladder. The pattern of the grain in the wood was a perfect match, and the nail holes lined up as well. This analysis has been done again recently in recent years by a wood expert today, and they um, they agree with the 1930s wood expert that his findings were correct then, and they're correct now. Handwriting analysts, which I'm not really sure how I feel about handwriting analysis today, let alone like in the 1930s, but whatever. Um, I'll give you guys all the info and you guys can decide for yourself. Uh, they looked at the 15 letters that were written for Condon to, you know, kind of 
go back and forth between the kidnappers and the Lindberghs. And those letters were compared to letters that Hauptmann had written to his wife. And it was determined that they were a match due to the individual letters, the spacing and the combination of letters such as like TH, STER, like all those letters that we write a lot. Um, it's apparently really hard to retrain your penmanship in those specific letter combinations. So even if you're like trying to like change the way that you write, like those S-T-T-H-E-R, it's super hard to change that because it's all just like muscle memory. It's also determined from the letters, specifically the first letter that was found in the baby's room, that the letter was written by a European immigrant. For starters, the letter begins with Dear Sir! exclamation point, which I found really um, interesting. Um, And the exclamation point uh, is apparently a German thing um, back in those days. So people would write like, hello, exclamation point, or hello, Deirdre, like exclamation point. Uh, The sentences are written quite poorly, like they have poor English. Uh, The dollar signs are put after the number instead of in front, like we do here in America. It should be noted that John Douglas requested that the envelopes be analyzed for saliva DNA to compare them to the living descendants of Haltman and another guy that we're going to talk about. And New Jersey denied this request. New Jersey, you've done it again. You really are super lame. Uh, just kidding. Just a little New York, New Jersey banter. I'm totally joking. And New Jersey people, please don't hate me. I don't mean it. Houtman himself took the stand and he maintained that he had nothing to do with the kidnapping or the murder and that if anyone was involved, it must have been his late friend Isidore Fish. Houtman claims that he is an innocent working man, an immigrant from Germany, whose dream was to come to America and live a life of honor and integrity. But Houtman is not as squeaky clean as he wants us and people back then to believe. In fact, Hauptmann had a record back in Germany. He was arrested for several crimes. Apparently, Hauptmann had used a ladder to sneak into the home of the mayor from the city he was from, where he stole some money and watches. There was also another instance where he and an accomplice held up two young women pushing baby carriages, selecting them because they were more vulnerable targets and could be manipulated to do anything that they could to protect their young infants. In fact, in order to get to America, Houtman had escaped jail. He had stowed away on a steamship and lied his way through immigration. He was bold, he was ruthless, and he had a history of you know, crime, some ruthless crime. All the attributes John Douglas, the criminal profiler, said that the kidnapper would have. Now, there were some character witnesses that testified in defense of Houtman. One man claimed that Houtman was in his bakery the night of the kidnapping. Another said he saw Houtman walking his dog that night. Another said he saw Isor Fish with Violet Sharp that night. But... Wouldn't you know that the defense had earlier put out an ad on a public radio station calling for anyone with information to contact them so that they could testify on behalf of Houtman. 
Many of the character witnesses ended up being crazies who just wanted to be involved in this famous uh, trial with Charles Lindbergh, or some were even witnesses for hire. After presenting 162 witnesses, 162 witnesses, the lawyers uh, delivered their closing statements. On February 13, 1935, the jury deliberated for just under 12 hours and returned with a guilty verdict with the, death, with the sentence to death. After the verdict was announced, Houtman was interviewed. A reporter asked him, are you scared? And Houtman replied, I fear for the wife, I fear for my wife and child, but I fear not for myself because I know that I am innocent. If I am brought to the death chair, I will go as a man, an innocent man, end quote. Houtman's defense attempts to uh, appeal is rejected. Board of Pardons is asked to commute his sentence to a life without parole, but that uh, request is denied. In 1936, Houtman is electrocuted, and until his dying breath, he proclaims his innocence. He even rejects several last-minute offers, one from law enforcement who had a hard time believing that Houtman had acted alone. They offered to spare his life if he would name his accomplices, but he refused, saying that he was innocent. Another offer came from a reporter. They offered $75,000, which would have been about a million and a half dollars today that would be left to his wife and child if he would just simply confess to the crime. But he refused the money and insisted that he was innocent. So, here lies a bit of a question. Was he really just that stubborn and uncaring and cold and callous that he would rather die with his secret than provide for his family? Or did he really just not want to confess to something that he truly did not do? Or was he just trying to protect the family name? He did have a young son. Perhaps he was trying to protect his young son's future. Houtman's wife, Anna, spent the rest of her life fighting to clear her husband's name. In the 1980s, she even sued New Jersey twice for unjust execution, but both times the case was dismissed on unknown grounds. She died at 94 years of age, and she never remarried. There is definitely still some questions about whether Houtman had help. For starters, Houtman is found with approximately a third of the ransom money. Where are the other two-thirds? He could not possibly have spent it that quickly. Criminal profiler Douglas says that this type of crime, especially of this magnitude involving such a high-profile victim, would need multiple kidnappers in order for it to be successful, not only to execute the crime itself, to, but to like hype each other up so that they wouldn't like give up halfway, which is kind of disgusting when you think about it. But I mean, you would need surveillance. You would need someone to hold the ladder at the bottom. You would need somebody to be your getaway driver. Um, he claims that you would definitely need to have more than one person. John Douglas thinks um, John Noel, a man named John Noel, could be linked to the crime as an associate of Houtman. But who the heck is John Noel? 
Well, there is a man named Robert Zorn who remembers going to the Palisades Amusement Park as a child with his father and some of his friends from the neighborhood. While at the amusement park, he kind of like listens in on a conversation between John Walter and a man called Bruno. And I should probably let you know that Bruno is John Houtman's first name, like his real first name, or Richard Houtman, sorry. So apparently Richard Houtman's name is Bruno Richard Houtman. Uh, the three men don't know that the child is listening in, and so they start talking about a job that they're going to consider doing in Englewood, New Jersey. And remember, Englewood is where Anne Morrow's family live, the place where the Lindberghs spend every Monday through Friday while their house is being like renovated and reconstructed. Fast forward to 1963, Robert Zorn's dad goes to a barber and just happens to pick up a magazine to sift through um, that has an in-depth article about the Lindbergh baby. Some words just seem to leap off of the page when he's reading the magazine. Uh, the name Bruno Houtman, um, he remembers Houtman from his neighborhood. Uh, the name Englewood uh, pops off the page. And one of the accomplices could be John. And remember, John, the man who accepted the ransom at the cemetery, could this have been his friend, John Noel? Condon reports after meeting Cemetery John for the first time that he was about 5'7 and 165 pounds, which is the stats of John Noel. We also know that he mentioned like this fleshy thumb thing, whatever that means. And there is a photo of John Noel carrying his child and he appears to have a really weird thumb anomaly in the photograph. Now, whether this is an abnormality or of the photograph itself, or if it's actually like John Noel's thumb abnormality, it's hard to say, but I'm going to post the picture on Instagram so that you can take a look at it for yourself. Um, there's also a sketch of Cemetery John, and when you put that up side by side with a picture of John Noel, I mean, it looks pretty close. I'll post that too so that you can give me your thoughts on that as well. Um, it also should be noted that three weeks after the ransom was paid, John Noel seemed to come into a large amount of money and had great fun flaunting it around and showering his friends with gifts. Apparently, Robert Zorn said that his own father received some very expensive collectibles. Um, his dad had been really interested in stamps, and John Noel had known that. And as a gift, um, he had given him like these really expensive um, stamp memorabilia. Also, three weeks before Haltman went on trial, um, and basically right after Haltman was arrested, Noel purchased first-class tickets for him and his wife on a cruise to Hamburg, Germany. These tickets would have cost around $700, which would be roughly $12,000 today. So that's a pretty expensive trip for a person who just worked at a local deli. Plus, the very day that Hellman is convicted, and only after he is convicted, does Noel and his wife get back on a boat to return back to the U.S. But, embellisher Condon, when he takes a stand, he says that the man he met in the cemetery was Hellman, and makes no mention of the fleshy thumb. In fact, Condon denounces that he ever said anything about a fleshy thumb. So now we don't know what to believe. Mom, 
I blame you. Just kidding. <laughs> I just blame people like you. Just kidding. <laughs> Charles and Anne uh, Lindbergh moved to Europe after the birth of their second child, who also received subsequent kidnapping threats. And just seriously, can we just leave the Lindberghs alone? I don't blame them for moving to Europe one bit. They ended up having uh, four more children together. So the second child that they had. And then uh, they had five total. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. In this really weird roller coaster way. They had five more kids after baby Charlie. Charles began a friendship with a man when they were living in Europe who shared a common interest in eugenics. (laughs) And this friend was none other than Adolf Hitler. (laughs) Yep, Charles Lindbergh Sr. ended up being a very good friend of Adolf Hitler and was considered a Nazi sympathizer. Yikes. Uh, Charles Lindbergh spoke publicly that Americans should become an ally to Hitler and that they should not try to stop the Nazis and their mission. Charles Lindbergh died in 1972 and Anne Morrow Lindbergh died in 2004. After Charles Lindbergh Sr.'s death, more information was gathered about his life and it wasn't as savory as everyone wished their world hero's life would be. Apparently, Charles had several, several lengthy affairs, which produced seven children by three German women. And these children didn't know who their dad was. I mean, like they knew him, but they didn't know him by the name of Charles Lindbergh. He had used a fake name, Karu Kent. He used that fake name with these women and children. Um... So, yep, that was our American hero. (laughs) Some say that because Hitler had such a man crush on Lucky Lindy that he had encouraged Lindy to, you know, how do I say this? Uh, Spread his seed (laughs) and create more savory individuals in, you know, in Hitler's mind. Um, Basically, more people to strengthen the Aryan race with several lucky ladies. There is a sort of a a sinister theory out there uh, perpetuated by a book called The Lindbergh Kidnapping by Lloyd Gardner. Uh, Lloyd is a respected historian at Rutgers University and he believes that it must have been someone working on the inside who could orchestrate this crime. And Gardner claims to know exactly who that person on the inside was. Charles Lindbergh Sr. himself. As shocking as this may sound at first, Lindy exhibited some peculiar behavior shortly after the disappearance of his son. And not just like typical behavior that we'd expect from a grieving parent. Um, Apparently, uh, Lindy didn't trust the police and he used his celebrity status and influence to control them and the investigation. He did not allow police to view the letters that were going back and forth between himself and Condon to the kidnappers. And some people have begun to wonder if he was hiding something and why. As we know, it's widely known that Lindy was very much involved in the eugenics movement. Ugh, gross. Uh, Lindy worried that his son would not 
grow up to be a healthy and strong young man. Um, Apparently there were rumors that baby Charlie had some type of like a deformity and some think that this was all planned out by Lindy himself because he was embarrassed by baby Charlie. He knew that at some point Charlie would grow and go out into the world and then the world would know that Lindy had quote-unquote defected genes. Gartner says that Lindy's obsession with not having a genetically perfect child would have weighed on his mind very heavily. The family doctor noted, you can look at medical records, uh, the family doctor noted that the baby had a fontanelle in his skull that should have been closed up by 20 months, but it hadn't been closed up. And the doctor had a difficult time getting baby Charlie to stand up straight, noting that he had a mild to moderate rickety condition. Rickets is caused by a vitamin D deficiency, so the parents were giving him like a vitamin D regimen to help with this. And Emmys today have looked at the autopsy reports and said that if Charlie did have rickets, it was certainly a mild case and that it was being treated appropriately and that he would have gotten like completely better in time. Gardner does state that he definitely doesn't think Lindy meant any harm to come to baby Charlie. Uh, Gardner believes that Lindy would have instructed some hired kidnappers to take Charlie and leave him at an institution. And as terribly harsh as that sounds, like it literally is making my blood boil again. Like this was actually a really common practice back in the day, especially with wealthy families. If they found themselves with a child who had medical or developmental issues, this was something that was really, really common. And I just think that's terribly, terribly sad. John Douglas, uh, the criminal profiler that we've been working with, he doesn't really believe Gardner's theory because he thinks that Lindy was just way too much of a control freak. And I can, I can see his point, but I can also see Gardner's point as well. Um, a more, I don't know what the word would be, a more accidental, like lighthearted, I guess if you can even say that, uh, tragic theory is that Lindy may have accidentally harmed the boy himself in a similar way it's believed by some that a kidnapper accidentally harmed the baby okay so um apparently Lindy was a prankster and a jokester and one of his favorite things to do was to pull jokes on his wife and the female staff like all the maids and the nannies and stuff and he would do like silly things like he would um, spray tomato sauce on the floor and on his head and then like make a loud noise in the kitchen so that people would like come in and be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he's hurt, he's hurt. But he would be totally fine. And he would do other things like pop out of the closets and he would like grab people. He would like hide under the bed and like grab people's ankles as they walked by. He just, he just loved to prank people. He was a funny guy. Some people theorize that while Anne and Charlie had been at the estate that day, Charles Sr. had not. He had gone to a meeting and he was supposed to arrive later that night, but he had actually missed his meeting and returned home early. Um, Some say that after the nanny put the baby to bed, 
Anne went to go take her evening bath, which she always did, and Charles Lindbergh um, arrived home and decided to pull a prank on his wife and the nanny. Um, Some people think that he parked his car away from the estate and he carried a ladder throughout the property. The dogs didn't bark because they recognized their lovable owner. Um, His plan was to pretend to kidnap the baby and then freak his wife and nanny out and they'd all have a good laugh when he retrieved baby Charlie from the kitchen or something. But some people think that something went wrong during the prank and the ladder snapped and his son was dropped, injured, and subsequently killed. Um, He now got scared and he, he had to stage the scene to look like a real kidnapping. And this could explain why Charles had been so anal retentive about being in charge of every little thing that the police did and why everything the police did was run by Lindy first. And and maybe that was because he was trying to cover his tracks. He didn't want people to know that, he, that there were no kidnappers, that this scene had been staged and that he had accidentally harmed his own son in the process of like trying to do this prank. Um, but even with all those theories, in the end, it probably was Houtman. I mean, all that money and Condon's phone number was in the home, plus the wood in the attic. I don't know. It seems pretty coincidental if, if that isn't really true. But we can't rule out that the police were probably so desperate to pin it on someone that maybe... I mean, it's possible that they wrote the number on the closet trim themselves and smudged it, but then, I don't know, that doesn't really take into account the wood in the attic and all the money. I mean, the world was watching this police, this police department's every move. They had a lot of incentive to close up this case as quickly as possible. I mean, they didn't want to look like fools to the world. Maybe... I don't know, maybe they fabricated the evidence. It's happened before, and I know that it will happen again. But I don't know. I think that there's just way too much evidence um, for them to have fabricated all of it. Uh, This unnecessary and tragic death of baby Charlie, um, it did bring, bring about some good after the fact. So the day after little Charlie was kidnapped, Congress created the Lindbergh Law, which we still use to this day. And this law makes kidnapping not only a federal offense, but a capital offense. And it is automatically punishable by the death penalty. So it makes kidnapping a very, very serious crime. And this was an incredibly good thing because during the 20s and 30s, a lot of kids were being kidnapped for ransom money. And the kidnappers, after being caught, were really just getting like a slap on the wrist for it. So this made the crime not seem so enticing anymore um, when getting caught for it would literally like get you killed and kidnapping rates for ransom did drop. I mean, there's obviously still kidnapping going on in America due to like parental conflicts and sadly due to child, human, and sex trafficking. But kidnapping for ransom rates um, are very, very low in America, actually. Um, still, I still wish that baby Charlie hadn't gotten killed to make this law though, but I'm glad we at least have this law now. 
it is very likely that this case will never be solved, um, that the accomplices won't be found, and that's mostly due to the interferences that Lindy himself created. Uh, you see, Lindy was so worried about Charlie that he didn't he didn't like allow police anywhere near the cemetery during Condon's meetings with John there. If Lindy had let them do their job, they probably would have been able to tail John back to his home and they could have known for sure who was involved. But because of Lindy's status, police were willing to do whatever he said. And now we'll probably never know the whole story of what happened to little baby Charlie. What do you guys think happened to Charlie Lindbergh? Do you think the right man was sentenced to death and executed? Do you think there are accomplices that got away? Could one of these accomplices be John Noel? Do you think Lucky Lindy was perhaps involved in any way? Did you know about Lindbergh's obsession with eugenics? Because that seriously was a shock to me when I was researching this case. But maybe I'm late to class in my knowledge of that. Let me know what you think on the Instagram post at Mystery Still Unsolved. Thanks for joining me on my first and last child case ever. Seriously, this totally sucked and I'm never going to do a child case ever again. <sighs> Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?